Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This is part one of a two-part message given by Pastor Eric Ludy at the Church at Ellerslie in lovely Windsor, Colorado. It is our hope and prayer that this message would convict, inspire, and invigorate your pursuit of the Lord Jesus Christ. We also want you to know that should you ever have any questions or comments regarding any of the ministries here at Ellerslie, we are always happy to provide answers and receive feedback. Simply contact us at info at ellerslie.com or give us a call at 970-686-9022. We really would love to hear from you. Enjoy the message and may your faith and love in Jesus grow larger as you listen. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Gospel Empowered, a study in the life-altering quality of the good news. A two-part series. And the way I get my third part in is by always giving an introduction, because I really like three parts instead of two. An introduction, the gospel dimension. Having a form of godliness, but denying the power thereof from such turn away. There seems to be this idea that in that which is termed the church, that there are those that will have a form of godliness, a form of Christianity, but they will deny something. They will exclude something from the package. And that something is called power. And when someone excludes power from the package of the gospel, from the life of the Christian, we are to turn away from that. That is a false rendition of Christianity. Now, most of us don't quite know what to do with that scripture. I mean, we're actually supposed to turn away from people. How are we supposed to determine if they have this in there or not? Well, that's not what this message is about. However, what I want to begin to enunciate is there's this gospel dimension, and I'm going to refer to that as the power in this statement, having a form of godliness. In other words, they have almost like the biblical worldview. They have the truth, but they are denying something. They are denying the power thereof from such turn away. When you lose the gospel power, when you lose that which makes it work, it doesn't work. It isn't really Christianity anymore. The Bible is to the gospel as. Now, this reminded me of some kind of SAT test when I was preparing it, but it's that which is likened unto something else. So what is the relationship between the Bible and the gospel? Can you rightfully say that the Bible is the gospel? Well, sort of. The Bible is what holds the gospel. The Bible is the enunciation of the Word of God. It's known as Scripture, which is the Word of God spoken, carrying the Spirit of God carrying along the writers, and then when they wrote it down, it became text. It became Scripture. It became what we know as 66 compiled books known as the Bible. So the Bible, or those 66 books, is to the gospel as, well, we'll say it this way, as a house is to those living inside of it. So the Bible could be like the house, and, but what's the good of a house? It's so that people would come in and live. And so it's the inhabitants that truly supply the value to that house. If the house burned down, you know, that, that's a terrible thing. But truly what gives it life is the people inside. And that isn't to diminish in this uh, metaphor, this illustration, the word of Scripture, because I don't want it to burn down. We want, it will last forever. But as a shell of a seed is to its inner pith, there's two facets to a seed. One is the outer shell, and and then there's another dimension, which is the inner pith. Which is the one that brings life? What's the inner pith? Is there anything wrong with the shell? No. Without the shell, the inner pith would dry up. And so you actually need both and. It's, It's the banana peel to the banana within. 
So the banana peel is that which protects and guards and nurtures that that banana inside. And I don't know how many of you want to eat a banana that's just sort of been sitting on the counter without a peel for a couple days. You see, that peel is what protects the life, but it isn't the life, and it's not the part you want to be eating. As the treasure map is to the buried treasure, it points to. The treasure map is valuable. It has extreme value. It is that which enunciates where the treasure is. But what is the most valuable thing? It is the treasure. And so as we go through this, I want you to realize there's a gospel dimension to everything in Scripture. Every Scripture within the Bible has a gospel dimension. The the text itself is extremely valuable, but the reason it's valuable is because it leads us to that which brings life. And that substance, that gospel dimension is not an impersonal force. It is a person. His name is Jesus. There is a gospel dimension that you can find all throughout the Bible, and it leads to a man. It leads to a person. It leads to what that man did. So the biblical form versus the gospel power. There is a form of godliness And then those that have this can deny the power thereof and from such turn away. So we're going to talk about the biblical form. You know that you could actually think biblical thoughts? That you could live in a a way that is in agreement with biblical thinking and yet not have the gospel and not be changed by the gospel? It sounds, I know, preposterous. It's early America. Early American history, when I, I used to teach constitutional law, one of the statements about it was that almost everyone in the culture had a biblical worldview. And it was actually unusual not to. But that doesn't mean that they had accepted Jesus, that they'd given their life and they had a changed life. It's just that it was so commonplace to think in accordance with the Bible. It didn't necessarily mean that they lived in accordance with the Bible. And today, even the Christians oftentimes think like secularists. They think from a humanist worldview, even though they're Christians. It's the exact opposite of early American uh, history. So the the biblical form, that's the BF, the biblical form shows you how you ought to live and what happens if you don't. So what does the biblical form do? This is the law. This is how you have to live. Do you know that entire governments can be built on the biblical form and they would be good governments? The American government is built on the biblical form. However, that doesn't mean it is the gospel. It is the framework that allows the gospel to succeed. It is like the shell of a seed. It's like the house in which you can move into. It's well ventilated, it has covering, and, and you know, when a wind and rains come, you're not going to get drenched or blown away. It actually is a shield. So the biblical form shows you how you ought to live and what happens to you if you don't. And the GP, the gospel power, shows you the one and only one that actually lived as the biblical form commands you to live and then introduces you to this one as your personal savior. The gospel power does something that changes life. And that is of the utmost importance in what we're going to talk about today. So listen, on the left side, you're going to see the biblical form. On the right side, you're going to see the gospel power. You must not sin. That is what the biblical form will tell you. And if you do sin, you die. The day in which you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Well, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the biblical form. It leads to something known as bad news. You are a dead man. You have sinned, therefore you are cut off from relationship with God. But look at what the gospel brings into into view. He conquered sin. Who did? You? No. He. Well, who's he? Jesus. You see, the gospel focuses on an individual and what that individual did and what that means to you as an individual. So you must not sin. If you are left with that, 
and you are left with only a biblical form and you deny the power thereof, where does it lead you? It leads you to death, actually. If all you have is a biblical form, you actually do not have power to live. You cannot do it. You would lead to condemnation. That's the only thing the law can lead you to. The law can only stipulate your need of a savior, your need of a rescue. You must be righteous. That's the biblical form. Because you have to be like God. If you want to have anything to do with God, you must be like God. He's perfectly righteous. He's in agreement with the law. The law is basically his nature. So how you doing? Measure yourself against the law. That's what the biblical form can give you. But the gospel power gives us something more. He is indeed our righteousness. So you must be righteous. And what does the gospel tell you? He is your righteousness. You must be holy just as God is holy. Yeah, good luck trying these things out. Many of us have spent a good portion of our Christian life attempting to live according to the the biblical form without the power. And it leads to tremendous condemnation and guilt and shame. That's the only thing it can offer you. It can offer you frustration. You must be holy as God is holy. Well, how about this? The Holy Spirit has been given you. That which is holy, that will make you holy, has been given. You must love just as God loves. You ever tried to do that? Well, God is love, and he will love in and through you. That's what the gospel gives you. You must pray without ceasing. Well, he ever lives to make intercession. He ever lives to pray. So therefore, do not take the weight upon yourself. Do not just attempt out of a biblical form to produce righteousness, to produce holiness, to love. What you have is the gospel, and the gospel gives the power to do. You must evangelize the lost. He has come to seek and save that which is lost. You see, each one of these in the left-hand side is what most of us have spent most of our energies in life attempting to do. However, what we need to realize is that there is one who can do it, one who has done it and one who will continue to do it, and he's simply looking for a vessel. You must visit the orphan and the widow in their distress. Well, it's an amazing reality to know that his heart will beat within your heart. It's not just you trying to whip up a compassion. It is you simply becoming his vessel for his Holy Spirit to dwell inside of you and suddenly your heart is transformed and you care about what he cares about. No longer is it work. Remember the sheep and the goats? They were divided into two sides. And Jesus says, because you did this when I was hungry, when I was imprisoned. And you know what their response was? When? When did this happen? This is what you did unto the least of these, you did it unto me. They didn't even recognize what they were doing. It was the natural outflow of their life. That is the amazing statement about the sheep. The sheep don't go out and go, I have to be right with God. I need to live according to the biblical form. They love Jesus. And when they love Jesus, they fulfill the biblical form because Jesus does it within them. The gospel supplies the power to do it. There was a message in our earlier series in this, uh, earlier in the series called The Power to Do It. Well, that's what the gospel is. It's the power to do it. Romans 1, so much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. So let's look at this. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, Paul declares, for it is the power of God 
unto salvation. Now, when you hear the word salvation, oftentimes you think of big S salvation. Salvation from the fires of hell. Fire, salvation from eternal separation and damnation, which is true. He is the power of God for that rescue from those eternal hellfire, from that eternal hellfire. However, he's also a small s savior, which means he saves you in all the small moments of your life between here and that fire to come. And that is the amazing reality of what the gospel gives you. It does not just give you salvation in the end. It gives you salvation now. It gives you a rescuer. It gives you a deliverer from everything that is hounding you now. When you begin to recognize that, the gospel suddenly mushrooms in your understanding. So let's enter session one. What exactly is the gospel? The gospel comes from a word, euangelion, which simply means the gospel. But what is that? Well, it's good news. Many of you have heard that. Well, let's break it down. This is actually what it means. Euangelion means the joyful proclamation of a kingdom. Well, that's sort of ambiguous. And so if you were going to say, so what's the gospel? And I were to tell you, well, it's the joyful proclamation of a kingdom. You could say, what kingdom? In other words, that doesn't say anything. You see, when the Greek uses this word euangelion, it's using a word that was already in existence. And that is a word that was used to declare a joyful proclamation. It's a very good proclamation. It's like some victory has taken place. A kingdom has come into being, whether that's after battle, after a triumph, after a victory. A king has been established that is a good king, and everyone recognizes that now the law will be instituted amongst the land, and there will be protection of the weak and the poor. Whatever that is, it's a joyful proclamation of a kingdom. What kingdom? And so when, if you were to ask me, so Eric, what's the gospel? Could you share with me the gospel? And I said, yeah, it's a joyful proclamation of a kingdom. Well, that wouldn't be sufficient, and we all know it. So you see, that's what the word means. But Paul unpackages and unlocks a deeper meaning to this word euangelion, just like every Greek word. The Greek language was in existence before the Spirit of God breathed into it. And so he takes words that have a normal everyday meaning and he brings dimension to them. So it's very, very important that when we talk about the gospel, we understand what the Bible says about it, not just what the Greek concordance or dictionary would say about it. Euangelion. So this is a deeper understanding of it, but still not sufficient to really pass along what you are needing. The glad tidings of the grace of God manifest in Christ. You see, if that's what I gave you, that would sound like a scientific definition. And it wouldn't necessarily be what we're all itching for and needing. It's like, no, Eric, I need to know what to share with someone. I need to know when someone comes up to me and they say, I need to know what is that hope that you have within you. What do you share with them? What is the gospel? What is it that we are supposed to convey? Because as Christians, we are entrusted with this euangelion. We are entrusted with this good news. So what is the good news? Well, the glad tidings of the grace of God manifest in Christ. Isn't that enough for you? No. You see, what's the grace of God? What does manifest even mean? Who is Christ? You see, Christ, you know, for those of us that speak Christianese, we understand what that is. That's the anointed. That's the Messiah. That's the one that was promised in the Old Testament. The grace of God has been brought to us. We now are receptors of that amazing grace of God because he has come. Well, what did he do? How did he bring it? What are we talking about here? You see, there is so much dimension to this thing known as the gospel. And so to try and give a little summation or a little dictionary definition doesn't quite cut it. 
Euangelion. So here's a little bit bigger enunciation of it. By the way, still not sufficient. The astounding news of Christ's victory over sin and death and the invitation to all to come and partake of his gracious feast, partake of his very person. God has come to earth, performed the most amazing feat, and has wrought the most profound victory. He has made a way for each of us, and that way is himself. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the gospel, were maybe discipled at Ellerslie, that all makes sense to you. However, for those of you that weren't, that could be, you know, just sound like some big words in there. You see, to enunciate the gospel, the gospel should be able to be communicated to the littlest child and to the oldest adult. And yet, that doesn't quite say it in such a way where you can wrap your mind around it and really get a grip on it, and yet that's true. Every single thing, the joyful proclamation of a kingdom is true. What's euangelion? What's the gospel? It's good news. Well, good news about what? Good news for who? Jesus Christ has come. God Almighty was born as a baby. He grew up and lived a sinless life. He perfectly fulfilled the righteous demands of the law, those demands that are upon you. You must be holy. He was holy. You must be righteous. He was righteous. You must enunciate the love of God perfectly. He did. He did everything that we could not. He died the death that we were supposed to die. You see, there's a lot of dimension to this gospel, as we will unpack it, that is going to be very, very important for you to begin to wrap your mind and your understanding around. So what is the gospel? So I have a little subtitle to that question. The gospel tears all important question in return. You see, say I'm asked the question, so Eric, what is the gospel? I'm going to ask a question back, and it's this. Who's asking? Because I'm going to give you that which you need. The gospel is quite full. There is so much dimension to it, and there's certain things you may already know, which means I'm not going to necessarily have to start in the Garden of Eden with every single one of you. And yet there are some that are so twisted in their understanding that come from such different worldviews that to give the gospel, you literally have to start far back, way back before the life of Jesus. How do you do that? How do you actually start in the very beginning and cultivate an understanding of this gospel? Well, it depends on who's asking. So the gospel preached to its varied audiences. So let's, I'm going to pick three different audiences, three different types of audiences. There are actually a lot of derivatives or variations even amongst these. But the slumbering, we'll say these are the people that are asleep in their sin. They don't even see that they are in need. It's like that frog that is in that water that is slowly increasing in heat and boiling, and it doesn't ever think to jump out. Well, that's, that's sort of like the slumbering. So what do you preach to the slumbering? What would be your message? Well, you know that it's different than the message I might give to you in this church service? You see, I'm going to deliver the gospel today, but I, would gi- I give you the gospel every Sunday, but I give it in a way that is necessary for where we're at as believers. You see, if it's a slumberer, well, it's not a different gospel. It's a different way that you give it. God is holy and righteous, and he will not be mocked. Repent and bend your knee and believe upon him for salvation, for the hour of mercy shall soon be past. It's a message of repentance. You give the law, and you show them their sin. That's what you do for the slumbering. Now, how about to the awakened? You see, someone who has been stirred, someone who has come to Jesus, they are awakened to Jesus, but they need to grow in the gospel. They have never really truly lived. Come and die that you might truly live. Pick up your cross and follow. 
You see, that's the gospel, but it's a different angle of the same message. And how about this one? To the Christian, to those that have come and died, to those that have left all behind. Do you know that you still give them the gospel? You still preach the gospel? Every time you interact with anyone in Christianity, you're giving the gospel. You're giving the good news of the kingdom. The joyful proclamation still resonates within our midst. It's not like you receive the gospel once when you were young and prayed a prayer and then go your merry way. The gospel is what we live on. We feast on. You didn't eat one meal in your life and then say, yeah, I've already eaten. You eat every day. The gospel is that food. Without it, you die. The gospel is our meat. It's our drink. It's everything because it's a person. And we feast upon that person daily. So to the Christian, don't let even one drop of our beloved's precious blood go to waste. He has entrusted you with his life. Live. Live to the fullness of what he has given you grace to do. Go into all the world. Live fully. Shine with the love of Jesus. This is the gospel. You see, it all flows out of the same source. It's the cross. So the gospel, it's not merely an event. You see, some people would say, well, the gospel's an event. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Would they be wrong? No, that's true. However, it's not merely an event. It's not merely a power, because I could say, what is the gospel? Well, it's the power of God into salvation. Would you be right? Well, of course you'd be right. That's what it says. However, it's more than just a power. It's not merely news. I could say, "What's, what's the gospel? You could say, it's the good news. It is news. You're right. However, it's, it's more than that. First and foremost, the good news is a person. Salvation is in a person. Redemption is in a person. Propitiation, atonement, reconciliation, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, and victory over sin. And the devil is found in a person, not in a plan, a prayer, or a systematic theology. We beckon people to believe in a person, the work of a person, the ability of a person to save and deliver. And this person is Jesus Christ. The good news Simply put, is Jesus Christ. And to be even more specific, the good news is Jesus Christ and him crucified. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. If Paul is going to diminish and limit down his message out of all the word of God, out of all the Bible expressed and revealed, if he's going to be limiting it down when he comes to Corinth to speak a message, he is getting down to the pith. He's getting down to the kernel of life. If you have this, you have what you need. And that something that they needed was a person and what that person did. And therein lies the heart of the gospel. Jesus Christ and him crucified. Planting and watering, the work of gospel tears. When I use the term gospel tear, I'm talking about those of us that have been changed by the gospel and then made, a, made fit and ready to go out and share it. And so a gospel tear has a job to do, and that is that we live to share. We live to give the good news of this kingdom. So the work of gospel tears, what is that work? To plant and to water. Listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians. For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. You see, The gospel is like a seed. It's likened unto a seed in Scripture. And we're entrusted with this seed. However, we cannot make that seed work in any life. All we can do is plant it and water it. But God is the one that quickens and makes alive. 
And so as a result, you begin to realize as we go through this message, there's one key thing I want you to begin to hold on to. It is not your eloquence that is going to save this dying world. It is not your even comprehension and understanding of the vastness of the gospel that is going to save this world. It is God who saves this world. The fact that he chooses to use us in the process is more to be startling as part of the good news. The fact that he even wants to use us, all we do is muddle things up. If it demanded that we had everything down, our doctrine to perfection without flaw before one life could be rescued, no life would ever be rescued. The gospel power does not hinge on our perfection. It hinges on his perfection, his ability. There was a story I was reading this past week. It was in Peace Child, uh, Don Richardson, and he was reaching the Sawi tribe in Netherlands, New Guinea. And it was the most backwards, upside-down tribe from the gospel. When he told them the story of Jesus, they got all excited about Judas. And he was their hero. And they were cheering on Judas because to them... The greatest form of uh, heroism was to fatten someone in friendship to then kill them and eat them. And that was the most noble thing you could do in a culture, was to betray and then to cannibalize them. And so Don Richardson found himself in what he would call the impossible situation for the gospel. Because when you give it, it comes out backwards and the, the, the antagonist or the bad guy becomes the good guy. How in the world can you show them their need for the good guy, the true good guy, Jesus Christ? And the story is truly amazing. You have to read the book to understand it. But one of the things that he said really struck me this week. He said this. He said, what looked impossible, this seemed like an impossibility. It must be the hardest situation for any missionary that's ever, ever had to, do, had to share the gospel. There is no more impossible situation than the one I had, he said. And yet... The more I thought about it, the more I realized that the gospel, if it really is what God says it is in the Bible, has to work here. Because it's God that makes it work. It's not his brilliance. It's not this missionary's ability to articulate. It's the fact that it must work. God makes it work. Not him. God does. And God did in that situation. It's absolutely an extraordinary story. The three gospel lenses. So for those of us that like to argue about the gospel, I'm not one of them, by the way. However, I do defend the gospel, and I will champion the gospel, and I do know when it's not the gospel. However, we inside the church get distracted over a lot of subtleties. For instance, when someone says, hey, that's not the gospel. The gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. No, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. It's power. It's not just an event that happened in history. It's like, whoa, whoa, hey, people. There's different lenses that you could put on the same truth. And that's what I want to show you here. The three gospel lenses. First, let's look at the historic lens. The facts are the emphasis. When you're talking about the gospel in history. Okay, let's break it down. All right, we have near 6,000 years of history. God created the heavens and the earth. And then right around, you know, the uh, 5,700th year or whatever it is, we had the, the advent of the Messiah, the birth of the Messiah. And he comes into this world and right around 30 to 33 AD, we have the crucifixion. We have the epicenter of all history right here. And at that event, we have something that took place which is of the utmost importance. 
And so when you're dealing with the, the, the historic lens, you're dealing with history. You're dealing with facts. These things actually happen. They're real people, real events that took place. This is actually extremely important in understanding the gospel. This is not a made-up story. This is a very real story in history. And so our defense of the historic lens is of the utmost importance in Christianity. You know, you have the Holocaust, and then you have people that deny the Holocaust and act like nothing, that it didn't ever happen. And that's a tragedy. When you begin to deny history, you lose the lesson in it. Well, when you deny the cross, you lose redemption, you lose salvation. You cannot deny this. This is everything. And so the historic lens, the facts of the emphasis, the historic life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and its subsequent accomplishments are the discussion. So when you're talking about the historic lens, which, by the way, when I preach, I'm going to talk about the historic lens a lot. However, it's not only the historic events that I'm going to share. There's a personal lens. You see, when you share the personal lens, now suddenly I'm not just talking about something that happened in history. I'm now talking to you. And I'm talking about how you relate to what happened in history. And so when we're talking about the personal lens, faith is the emphasis. I'm going to beckon your soul to turn unto that event in history and believe. You see, if I only give historic facts and then I leave and I walk off the stage, I say, yeah, it happened. I am not beckoning your soul to respond to it. You must respond to what God reveals to you. So the personal lens, faith is the emphasis. The power of the gospel and its ability to personally save and deliver is the discussion. Do you see that event? That event was for you. And when you turn unto that cross work, it saves you. It wraps you in his righteousness. It clothes you in his work. And now his work becomes your work. And how about this? The daily lens. You see, a lot of Christians have the historic lens and they have the personal lens, but they lack the daily lens of the gospel. Because a lot of us have this notion that the gospel is something you hear once. Like, for instance, if I said, yeah, we're going to have a message on the gospel today. Oh, Eric's going to give the gospel today. Many of us could say, oh, I, shouldn't, I don't need to go to church today. I already know that. Well, I give the gospel every day. And so that's why I have to be careful calling a message the gospel because everyone's going to think, oh, I already know that. However... There is so much richness and dimension, and the gospel is the impetus behind every message. If the gospel isn't in the message, it's a useless message. You strip the person of Jesus out of the message, and there's no message left. There's nothing that changes. There's nothing that converts the soul. There's nothing that actually works. And so the daily lens, practically living out the triumph of the gospel, is the emphasis. So could you imagine? I say, yeah, this happened 2,000 years ago. You must turn and believe. Now... Go and live it. Go and preach the gospel to all nations. Pray without ceasing. Rejoice in tribulation. Good luck. You see, the gospel does not just meet us with history. It does not just meet us with a one-time event of turning and believing. It meets us at the level of need, which is daily, moment by moment. And this is how we preach as Christians. This is how we live. We live out the gospel. So the daily lens a.k.a. we could call it the gospel worldview, i.e. the power of sin is destroyed, my old man is dead, I have newness of life in Christ Jesus, Christ is exalted to the highest place, I am seated in heavenly places in Christ, and the power of the Almighty is resident in me, enabling me to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. Now, that's a very short summary of it. However, this is what discipleship is. Discipleship is being trained and groomed in the life of the gospel. It's not just head knowledge of a historic event. So when someone says, oh yeah, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, they're right. 
However, how does that death, burial, and resurrection affect you? And is it affecting you today? Are you living the gospel? Or do you just know about it? You see, if you've been changed by the gospel, it's your food and drink every day. How many times did you eat the gospel today? Well, three to five times. You see, a really healthy person is going to be eating a lot of small meals a lot during the day. Have you ever heard that? It's like three to five meals a day, you know, smaller meals. That's at least the, the current diet. However, the gospel is the same way. We are going to eat the gospel continually, constantly reflecting upon it. This is how I live. This is how I breathe in my life. I am dead in Christ's death. His death is my death. His burial, my burial. My old man is no more. So when the old man knocks, what do I do? I preach the gospel to my soul. Always, over and over again. When I am being tempted, when I'm being tested, what do I turn to? Myself? My own pockets? A religious form? I turn to the gospel, which has the power of God unto salvation, not just big S in the end, but small S moments. All along the way, I need to be saved. And I have a savior. You see, the gospel has a lot of dimension to it. The good news is, and so let's look at the historic event of the gospel. This is important that we know it, so let's go through it. Near 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit, lived a sinless life, and, was in, and in his mouth was no guile. He was the scent of the Father. He was God himself, a heavenly emissary of divine love and mercy. At the age of 33, Jesus Christ gave himself into the hands of sinners in order to fulfill all righteousness and redeem those in bondage to sin and captive to the eternal consequences of sin. Jesus suffered in Gethsemane and under the cruel tortures of evil men. He was scourged and bore the infamy of a criminal, though he was innocent, pure, and spotless as a Passover lamb. He died in the stead of sinful humanity, a propitiation and an atonement for our sins. He redeemed a fallen humanity by the shedding of his precious blood, reconciling unto us unto God. He justified those who would believe in faith and clothed them in his righteousness. He bore the just punishment of our sins and pacified the wrath of God towards those who would believe. In dying, he both proved himself the Messiah and also created a new and living way for sinful humanity to be restored under right relationship with the Father. This same Jesus that died was buried, and on the third day in the early morning hours of the first day of the week, he was raised again to life by the Holy Spirit. He was witnessed among men, and on the 40th day after his resurrection, he ascended before the witness of his disciples to go to be with the Father and to take his seat at the right hand of authority, where all things were placed underneath his feet. Ten days later, the full fruition of his great cross work was realized on this earth when the Holy Spirit was sent forth to dwell in those who believe, empowering them to live the pure, holy, and righteous life of Jesus, and enabling them to overcome sin and the devil, and exerting the very authority of Jesus Christ in their actions, words, and lives. So, that happened. Those are facts. That's history. And it's of the utmost importance that that is the baseline and the foundation for our reasoning. We don't make up a history. We don't make up a story of who Jesus was. We believe what the word of God reveals him to be. We believe the record, and that is the record of our Messiah. So let's look at the second lens. The good news is the saving grace of Jesus Christ is yours personally. Now, if all you know is the historic event, how does that affect you? The gospel, when presented, always presses the plea to the individual soul to see and to respond. So, this is when you get personal, by faith. So I'm going to say to you, believe. Now what's funny is you can't even believe without the gift of grace. I don't even know how to explain it. However, without God doing a work in your soul, you cannot 
even turn unto him. You cannot even see this work. How many billions of people on this earth have never seen it? And yet you have. And so when you preach, you cannot make someone see, but you still can appeal to their soul. And it's an amazing thing, but I know when I'm giving the gospel when someone is being worked on by the Holy Spirit. And if someone's being worked on by the Holy Spirit, guess what? As far as I'm concerned, it's a done deal. It might not happen instantaneously, but it's a done deal. Those, that person is coming to Christ. So by faith, Christ is your clothing. His death is your death. His burial is your burial. His resurrection is your resurrection. His ascension is your ascension. And you are to be the clothing of Christ. Now that makes a lot more sense to some of you in here than to others. However, I just gave you the gospel. That's the gospel right there. That's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Now it affects you. You see, when you turn to Christ, when you turn to that work on the cross and say, that is the work that saves. When you simply turn in faith, which is the concept of believing, faith is a noun, and to believe is the verb. It's the action of faith. So when you have faith, you believe. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So by faith, when you turn unto Christ, his work, he clothes you. It's like entering into clothing or entering into a strong tower. When you're outside the tower and it's cold and it's windy and it's blustery, guess what? You're cold. However, when you enter inside the tower, all those effects of that storm outside stop instantly. You see, when you enter by faith into Christ, he is a strong tower. He is clothing. He is armor. All of these are the descriptions in Scripture of who he is. He's a refuge from the storm. And so when you believe in him, it's silenced. And you are suddenly clothed in his work and all that wrath and all that condemnation that was beating against you and blowing against you, it's silenced. And in that, you suddenly realize you've always had this old man. Oh boy, does he get under our skin, doesn't he? Have you ever tried to put to death the old man? Get out of here. I'm tired of doing the things I don't want to do. You can't kill the old man yourself. There's nothing in your pockets that can overcome him. And yet, when you enter into Christ, guess what? His death becomes your death. And when he died, your old man died. So when you believe that his work is sufficient, you enter into his death. It's like crawling in that open wound in his side and entering into that, and guess what? Your old man is crucified. It's done. His burial is your burial. Now the old behavior is no longer seen. It's no longer visible on this earth. It's buried. And his resurrection is your resurrection. So when he rose to the dead, guess what? You're in him. Therefore, you rose. His ascension is your ascension. Where he goes, you go, because you're in him. It's like being in a plane. Wherever it goes, you're going. And he went to the right hand of the Father. And guess why he took you there? So you could be the clothing of Christ. Not only is he your clothing, but then you become his clothing. And now the Holy Spirit enters into you, and that's called Christianity. There's the gospel right there. The good news is, now let's look at it from the daily lens, that Jesus ever lives to make intercession for me. He didn't just bring me big S, but also small S salvation. That's the gospel. You see, Jesus ever lives to make intercession for me, which means he didn't just work on my behalf 2,000 years ago. Do you know that he works on my behalf today? He is laboring on my behalf, the same way he labored back then. When you begin to catch that, I tell you what, it gets so exciting, because that's what grace is. Grace is not just saving you from hell. Grace is enabling you to be saved from all hellish thought, hellish behavior now. The blood of Jesus is efficacious, which means it works. And Jesus ever lives to make intercession for me. He will save me to the uttermost. The power of sin is destroyed. The power of Satan is crushed. 
Christ is exalted to the highest place. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ. And the power of the Almighty is resident in us, enabling us to live lives that otherwise would be impossible. And though we be as sheep among wolves, as sheep under the slaughter, dying all the day long, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. No weapon fashioned against us shall prosper, and nothing, and I mean nothing, shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are immovable, unstoppable, and fearless. For we are the redeemed of God, the twice born, the reward of his suffering. So, what is the gospel? Here's my simple way of saying it. He has done it, and he will continue to do it. Right there. Now, if I came up to you on the street and you said, so what's the gospel? I probably would have to give you more than that. He has done it. Who has done it? Jesus Christ has done it. He has finished the work that you needed to have finished so that you could live. And guess what? He didn't stop, but he will continue to do it, which is everything you need for life and godliness. Everything you will ever need for big S and small s salvation. Everything. That's the good news. The joyful proclamation of the kingdom has come, and you have been entrusted with it. Thank you so much for listening to part one of this two-part message by Pastor Eric Ludi pastor at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns cheering you on as Christ cultivates his set-apart life within you.